team. Good morning, everybody. Anyway, a delight to uh, see you all. And uh, thank you to the team. And your great songs today. Enjoyed singing them all. <laughs> Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit and thank you for the Word of God. And now enliven every heart. Grant that here today ears would hear, hearts would understand, eyes would see. Thank you for the, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that transforms us day by day into the image of Christ, teaches us to be like you, to think like you, to walk with you. Holy Spirit be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little feedback there, I guess I'll sort that in a minute. <clears throat> you hearing what I'm hearing, or is it just here? Must be my dynamic voice, right? Just reverberating in the place. <laughs> uh, anyway, we've got an expert back there. He'll take care of all of that. Now, let's... Um, last Saturday, not yesterday, like a week ago, uh, Jonathan did a great job with that wedding. This is... Sarah and Ryan's wedding, and a lot of us were there, and no, he did, it was his first wedding ever, but he did such a fine job, and um, I'm always grateful, see, you know, young people rising up, filling out these things. I got talking to him afterwards, and uh, or when maybe it was Lloyd, I started talking to somebody, and recognizing that the subject of marriage, the, you know, the meaning of marriage, its purpose in society, the Lord's purpose for marriage, it's a, it's a wonderful subject, and marriage is an amazing thing, but along with you know, numbers of other subjects, uh, there's a great need to teach it more clearly, and uh, especially in this modern day, for people to have a deeper understanding. And so the, the whole idea of the sanctity of marriage, what we call the sanctity of marriage, that needs to be taught. So I was saying this to them. And they were saying the same thing, and I was thinking of several other subjects, all of which need to be freshly taught, and I wasn't intending to speak about it today, but uh, come Thursday, Friday, yesterday, the Lord just wouldn't, I didn't think I was ready, I thought, needs a lot more thought, he just would not let me walk away from it, in the end I had to sit down last night and say, okay, Lord, what do I want to say? <laughs> so we're going we're to explore that subject. Marriage really is a most amazing thing. And the first thing to notice is this, it's not just Christian it is something the Lord gave the human race. It was always that thing from the beginning. It is intended for all. Now, Christians are meant to perfect it. We're meant to walk in the grace of it, you know, more and better than anybody. But the interesting thing is that in, in all ages of the human race, you can go back as far as you like, there are the most wonderful examples of great marriages. And uh, there has been this principle from the beginning, from Adam and Eve on, this clear principle that uh, a husband and wife are joined together for life, and actually the stability of that, the security of that, when it's maintained, is what does absolute wonders for society, but in, but in particular that working out is in the raising of children. Children are secure. I know that children are more secure more at peace when they know deep in their hearts that their father loves their mother 
their mother honors their father, that's where you get the good outcomes. And that's exactly what the Lord intended marriage to do, but it has even bigger purposes again. It was given by God in creation. He, he brought the first woman to the first man. And therein lies the principles of marriage from that time to this. It's astounding. It's a gift to the whole race. Now, we take vows. When we get married, we take vows. And in those vows, we say certain things. We'll take a quick look at that in a minute. But what I've observed for a long time now is that the power of a good marriage is not in the making of the vows, but in what the individuals believe. Because there are lots and lots of wonderful marriages in this world. They have their ups and downs. We'll think about that in a minute. But you know, the human race is full of a very good record of marriage that have stayed together for life, but it wasn't actually the vows that kept them together. There's also a lot of marriages that didn't last and the, the vows didn't keep them together. So whether, whether you've got this you know, wonderful supply of rich marriages for life or whether they fail, it wasn't the vows in either case that made the difference. It was what people believe in their hearts. In other words, it comes back to values. And this is why over the years, if ever I've chatted with young couples before they marry, the thing I'm trying to find out is what do they believe? Not what they're willing to say on the day, but what do they actually believe? Because every one of us, it doesn't matter whether we're talking marriage or some other thing, every one of us acts, especially when the chips are down, in accordance to what we believe. And our biggest problem in society today is people's beliefs have changed so much, their values have changed. It's not what they consciously say is important, it's what deep down in their hearts they feel is important. That's the thing out of which they act or react in every situation, what they deep down really believe. And this is one of the reasons why in churches like this, you've got to be continually teaching values because we've got young people growing up who need to understand those values and walk in them. Now, human, human beings are not perfect in performance. We, you know, we, make, we all make mistakes of various kinds and in marriages, mistakes get made too and sometimes that has very unfortunate outworkings. And so we don't seek to criticize and condemn. We seek to encourage and work with people trying to get good outcomes. And so there's no sense in which, you know, a, a teaching word like this is meant as a, as a guilt trip, but rather, you know, seeking to get a deeper understanding of what it's all about, especially so as to inculcate, you know, proper thinking in the lives of young couples, people who will be married in the future, older couples who maybe are facing issues. So anyway, it's good just to step back, rethink about the whole thing. Anyway, the, the real power for better living, remember, is in what you believe because it seems like you can take all the vows in the world, make, won't make any difference if your value system isn't really there. When, uh, I don't know how, how Hazel and I got our value system actually, but even at 17 years of age, and that's when we met, and within three months we had agreed to marry, but it was kind of like our secret. Um, 
the, um, but even at 17 years of age, we would sit in the car outside Greasy Joe's Cafe. That wasn't actually the name of the cafe, but it was, you know, we'd buy the, the Chico Rolls. <laughs> still, still the greatest things. And, uh, you know, sit in my little mini minor, a little Cooper S in those days. Um, but we would, you know, we'd talk about the future. We wanted kids. She wanted children. I wanted children. We wanted to raise them for the glory of God. Uh, one of the things we were agreed on was that um, when you get married, the one thing you never do in your arguments, presuming you're going to have some, the one thing you never do is use the D word. You know, well, you know, your attitude stinks so much I ought to divorce you. See, once you, you might not mean it, but once you let something out of your mouth like that, you can, you can never, ever, ever again stuff that cat back in the bag. It's just not possible because you will never be able to remove the doubt in another person's mind that you might be thinking that. So one of the things as 17-year-olds we agreed on was that in all the course of our life, no matter what the problems might be if they came up, neither one of us would ever, ever, ever speak that way to the other. Well, what was that? And neither one of us thought that that was strange. It was practical because of the values we held about what marriage was, two people being made one person for life, then that meant that you ordered in advance the way you would, or you know, the, the, the safety rails, if you like, the parameters in which you would operate because you thought and believed in a certain way. And, and we didn't tack on, you know, as Christians that we, we should do. No, this is what you did to live properly, to have a good marriage, to raise children. Now, that means that, oh, and obviously, clearly, clearly, uh, well, no, not clearly to you. You haven't been in all the uh, rather intimate discussions we've had at times. <laughs> you know, in other words, we've had, We've had serious matters to deal with and, and sometimes, you know, disagreements and stresses like everybody else. But, but our values never let us down. And that particular rule that we formed years ago, and we don't even think about it from one to another. It's not like we remind ourselves every day what the rules are. There's just deep underlying understanding of how to live. And has never let us down. So in other words, Neither one of us ever have thought or spoken that way. And so it, it says something about the importance of, from early on, getting your belief system right if you want the good outcomes. Because remember, it comes from not decisions you make along the way, but all your preloaded beliefs. The trouble is, especially, and the younger you are too, you know, we've got a whole series of generations here right down to kids. The trouble is that over the, the years of my lifetime, values in the community have changed. Thinking in the world around us, you know, we're talking Western society, they've changed so much that unfortunately, we would have a whole lot of younger couples and, and then even younger singles 
growing up who, without realizing it, would have completely cockeyed beliefs. That, in other words, their values would be poor, would be weakened because of the assumptions in the world around you. It would be very common now to think in society, oh, if it doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. Now, admittedly, sometimes a divorce is needed. And Jesus allowed for that. But there have been periods in the history of Israel, and right now, right now in the history of the church, but there were some previous periods in the history of Israel where the values got bad, and this thing went to the other extreme. So instead of divorce being a rarer thing, it became a more common thing and thought nothing of like society today doesn't think that much of it because they fail to understand the value of the marriage, the sanctity of the marriage, what a marriage can achieve, what it will do for each of the parties if you know how to walk in it properly. But yes, we know there are exceptions to the rule. We know there are times when the behavior of one of the parties is, is such that, um, you know, very difficult, perhaps part, both parties. And the, the big one, the big one that makes it difficult is unfaithfulness. That's the big one the Bible names as being, in fact, the, the, one, the one thing that is very destructive of marriage. However, last uh, Saturday, like a week ago, Jonathan said something very interesting. He's got, he's got uh, Ryan and he's got Sarah and he's about to lead them in the vows, but he wants to say something thoughtful, first of all, and he says to them, I can't remember what his intro lead up to this was, but he says, um, now I've got a little news for you, you know, I want, I want you to know, you know, marriage, so wonderful, so important, you're about to enter into something so lovely, but I've got news for you, he says, Ryan, it's not about you. He says, Sarah, it's not about you. And see, this is the first thing to get straight. But see, this is the thing that has become so crooked in society today. Everyone today, so me-centered. It's all about me. Advertising for university, you know, putting you in the picture. You can do anything you want. And, and so we live in a culture now so hedonistic, so pleasure-seeking. A lot of people are in a marriage, but they think, they're thinking about what this marriage is going to do for me. Whereas the real value system of marriage, in particular Christian marriage, is you're not entering into this marriage for your own sake alone. And it's all about what three of you can become. It's a, certainly marriage is about what the two of you become together. But for Christians, of course, it's about him in you, what the three of you become together. So it's not about you, whether you're married right now, not married right now, it's not about you. It's about the us. And uh, you can think about that us in terms of both the twos and the threes. Now, of course there will be struggles and disappointments, and you might, you might yourself even right now be in a position where there are disappointments. 
and there's failures and there's anger and frustrations. Um, but if you if you right now in, in mar you're married, but you've you're struggling with disappointments and some failures and some anger over things and and so on and forth, I suggest um, no. Your your marriage is obviously can be you, you know addressed to to bring about the uh, the enrichment of the marriage, but to do so. One of the things to be addressed, possibly the most important thing to be addressed, is your own expectations. Uh, in another way of saying your beliefs. What are your beliefs? And as part of that, you're going to have to address what are your cultural expectations. In other words, do you think like the world around you? We're going to learn to think like Jesus. So that, anyway, here's, here's a little bit from the wedding vows. And this... This would be the same or similar as last weekend, but most weddings are the same. The, this particular wording comes from the standard uh, official peace order of service, uh, which, by the way, when we were issued um, uh, the authority to appoint our own marriage celebrants, this is Peace Christian Ministries Limited, do you realise that Peace Christian Ministries Limited years ago was recognised by the Justices Department of Australia as a denomination for but only for the purpose of the Marriage Act. In other words, that's, that's all it has the power to do. So in other words, we, we appoint our own marriage celebrants, not just here, all the churches that are linked with us. And uh, so to do that, of course, you lodge your uh, official form of wedding ceremony, but you word it so that, uh, you know, variations on the themes could all be built in. Anyway, of course, one of the most critical moments in a, in a wedding ceremony is what we call the declarations. This is generally the first thing that a couple is led to respond to. When they're asked a question, in reply to which they say, I will, or I do, depending on how the question is phrased. And so here's the question. Uh, you know, Jack, will you have Mary? Or John, you know, will you have Hazel to be your wife? To live together according to God's will in the holy fellowship of marriage. Will you love her, comfort her, honour her, and keep her in sickness and health, and remain faithful to her for as long as you both shall live? To which the groom standing there says, I will. This is the declaration. And then she's asked also this question, and she says, I will. But there's a lot in that declaration. To live together according to God's will in the holy fellowship. Holy fellowship, the sanctity of marriage. Will you love, comfort, honour and keep in sickness and in health and the capstone and remain faithful for as long as you both live. This of course addresses the, the heart of it. And then later on, of course, there's the exchange of vows where something like this is said, this is our standard, our standard one that gets variations. Before these witnesses, this is where they, you know, repeat after me. Before these witnesses and in the presence of God and with his help, I, John, take you, Hazel, to be my lawful wife. In fact, these statements are required legally in Australia to be married, this, this uh, exchange of commitment. 
And the other thing that's required, aside from signing the register, is the celebrant saying, I declare you to be a man and wife. They're the three things legally required. But in this exchange of vows, I, you know, James, take you, Mary, to be my lawful wife. I will love you and honour you. In, in many ways, this is a repetition of what was already in the Declaration. I will always care for you for better or worse, for richer or poorer. Some wag made a joke about this and said, sound like you're marrying 16 people, you know, four richer, four poorer. Four. <laughs> uh, but anyway, for, for, for better or worse, oh yeah, <laughs> for richer, for poorer. <laughs> in sickness and in health, until death separates us, and this I declare upon my honour. And it's an astounding thing. What's really astounding about it is this. This is the most astounding thing. That this is not just two people, or three if you count the celebrant, um, entering into a contract. This is, this is no human contract. The biblical position is, at this moment, whether you're a Christian or not, God gets involved and he glues you together. Although the, the gluing, uh, it's actually the consummation of, a, of the marriage, the, the sexual union that actually completes this whole deal. Because without the consummation of the marriage, you don't really have a marriage. But it's not just a physical thing, something happens spiritually. So much so, so much so, that Paul says, if a Christian man goes to a prostitute, you have the problem of a man who has joined the Lord in spirit, but now one body with a prostitute. Serious, serious problem. The marriage is, is, meant, is not just a one flesh relationship, it's holy. That's why a big part of these vows is, remember, best when based on values and beliefs. A big part of it is this faithful, as long as we both shall live. This main maintenance of this, the two become one, hugely important. The, um, the amazing thing, where the miracle comes in, it's found in this two become one. Somehow God glues a marriage couple together. In fact, if you go right back to the creation story where it says... Um, husband will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word cleave comes from the old Hebrew notion of being glued, glued together. But, if, but it, with the idea that when you glue two pieces of wood together and you separate them, it's never the glue that breaks. It's always the wood that breaks. And this is why when there is separation and divorce, there is so much pain for the individuals involved. And not only them, pain for the children, pain for society around, pain for the church. This is why we, we try to avoid this at all costs. We, we try to make marriages healthy and wonderful, and yet you, you don't get too far if you, we don't deal with the underlying thinking about what does it all mean and how can we go about being truly one. Of course, when Hazel and I got married, it was very clear in our minds that from this point on, 
everything we own, we both own. Everything we do, we both do. In fact, one of the things, that the, the earliest agreements, and it didn't take any discussion, we just knew what the right thing to do was, but I would have verbalized it that from that point on, I would never ever have a female friend that wasn't her friend. In other words, it would be her friend, and, but there'd be times I'd be part of that and times I wasn't. I would never have a female friend that wasn't her friend first. And I would never, and she would never have a male friend that wasn't my friend. In other words, they were friends together. I could have male friends and she could have female friends, but I would never have a female friend. She would never have a male friend that wasn't a friend of the other person. These were just basic values for healthy living. And, and things like that, natural to us at the time, not so natural to people today. But see, this has to be thought through, especially if you're going to have the kind of rich marriage filled with grace, filled with achievement, permanent, that the Lord really wants you, you to have. You do your best, even though we all make mistakes. Anyway, this gluing, no gluing. Uh, the Lord glues a married couple together. And uh, it's, it's astounding. The Bible's really clear over and over again. The two become one flesh. We often refer to it as the one flesh relationship. And it's astounding. Like it's, it's, it's beyond a miracle that you can understand. Anyway, this will make sense in a minute when we read. However, however, going back to the Old Testament, there was a time... You might remember the story of uh, Zechariah, you know, building the wall of Jerusalem and building, rebuilding the temple. This is after they've been exiles in Babylon all those years and some of the exiles came back and the, the city's just a ruin, the temples are ruined, the walls are ruined, everything's a ruin. They had to set about rebuilding because this was God's will. Little did they know it was God's will because it was going to lead to Christ. And so the Haggai, uh, the Haggai the prophet was prophesying to them, urging them, build the temple. You know, you're building your own houses, but this temple remains a ruin. It's a disgrace. You know, we ought to be as concerned about the house of God as we are about our own house. He's prophesying. Zechariah is organizing the building. And they're great stories. And the words of Haggai were taken to heart. The people in those days put aside their sins, met publicly, listened to Ezra the scribe preach. They sorted out their marriages. They sorted out their adulteries and their foreign wives and they devoted themselves to and quite astounding outcomes. However, it wasn't long. They'd finished building the temple and they had these expectations, you know, build the temple and the Lord is going to come. Like as if that was going to be the culmination of all things. No, their, their role was hugely important but little did they realize they were they were important part of something that was far, far, far bigger that was going to transform the whole world. But when they didn't start to see the full outcomes, guess what? They drifted again. And so this is around 500 BC. It wasn't very long after that that the prophet Malachi comes along. These last four little chapters at the end of the Old Testament that were written back Malachi had to call the people to repentance because life for them in serving Christ had become so degraded. And this is why when you read Malachi, what you find is this. The priesthood had become corrupt. Worship had become routine. 
divorce was widespread, social justice totally ignored, and tithing neglected. And so Malachi takes on all these issues. Now you'll understand this little passage in Malachi about marriage and divorce. Let's put it up on the screen. And this second thing you do, Malachi says, okay, where's that passage? Here it is. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Look at that right there, with a portion of the spirit, the Holy Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. No, men were ditching their wives. And, and you know, it was a great breakdown. And this reveals the Lord's heart. In other words, they were very quick to adopt cultural attitudes, a bit like you see too common around us today. But it, it's not what the Lord wants. Well, it turns out that another one of these times when divorce was rampant and, and just treated as an easy thing was actually in the time of Jesus. Now, you need to know this so that when you read the gospel, what Jesus said makes a whole lot more sense. By the time of Jesus, because, uh, you know, the Lord himself and others said that that was the worst generation ever and that all the historic sins of Israel, would, the blood of all the prophets shed would be laid at the footsteps of that generation, and they were, because within 40 years, the Lord sent the Romans who totally, totally, totally destroyed Jerusalem, just destroyed the temple, destroyed the priesthood, total destruction, the complete shutdown of Mosaic Israel, and, and Old Testament, Old Covenant, Judaism and, and Jerusalem. Fi the final judgment of God that's destroyed the nation completely came within 40 years of Jesus speaking his woes over the Pharisees. But what had arisen in that generation amongst other things, aside from greed and you know devouring widows' houses and all the things that Jesus condemned was easy divorce. And it turned out there were two schools of rabbinic thought. And there was a big argument in that day. Now, remember how they used to come to Jesus trying to trap him in his words. Remember the, you know, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to get Jesus offside with one crowd or the other. And so when they came to Jesus and says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or not? It was one of these traps because it was one of the things in which society at the time was really divided. And there were, there were two, two schools of rabbinic thought. Now, one of the schools of rabbinic thought um, in, was pretty clear that, no, Moses allowed, had written a, a law allowing divorce, but it was only for immorality. It was only for adultery. But the other school of thought, because the words in the law in Deuteronomy were just vague enough, the other school of thought said, no, a husband can divorce his wife for 
anything that makes him unhappy. In other words, if, if the roast is overcooked, in fact, they actually said this, if she over, had overcooked the roast or oversalted the meat, you could divorce her. And there's an example of it right in the history of Josephus, uh, the celebrated Jewish historian Josephus in, in his book called Life tells us with the utmost coolness and indifference, quote, about this time I put away my wife who has borne me three children, not being pleased with her manners. Well, look, it's a, it was a disgrace. In other words, easy divorce, no reason needed, incompatible now. So the, but this was the argument in Jesus' day. And there were, and so you had these well-heeled types with plenty of money who could, um, who would think nothing of, you know, writing certificate orders, get, get rid of their wife. One rabbi said that it was fine if you saw another woman that was better looking than your wife, it was enough reason to divorce your wife. But, but look, that's exactly what happens today. Don't, don't kid yourself, it's not. It's exactly what happens today. We've got cases right now, politicians in Australia still in Parliament, football coaches, older football stars, they're public figures, they're often on the TV, and they've done exactly this. Wives that had served them well. There was a prime minister whose wife had served him so well, raised his children. But he was a flander, and sooner or later, you know, the time came, he flicked her completely, and then lived permanently, shacked up with some other younger woman. Look, it's evil, but what, what the root of the evil is the belief system about what it's all about. Yes, there will be breakdowns of marriage. Yes, there are some tragic circumstances where faithlessness has occurred or where there's violence and, and abuse and alcoholism and, and there, you know, there are some serious issues in some marriage. And, and over the years, we've had to help people in these situations and, and not help them feel guilty. No, help them deal with it and make the best choices in the circumstances they could make and, and where separations occurred, you know, support them and love them and so on and so forth. You know, I, I had a woman years ago turn up in Cowra where I was the Salvation Army officer and she had fled from Queensland to hide from her husband who was so violent and she had four children and she turned up at the Salvation Army store looking for help, you know, some clothing and a bit of furniture and nowhere to go. And the Lord said, straight out, treat her like you would your own mother. Now, we cared for her, cared for her kids, found a house, furnished that house. They all came to Christ, the whole lot. But, you know, care for her like you would your own mother. Now, of course, we're full of compassion in every situation of need such as this. But we don't, we don't define the value and purpose of marriage by the exceptions to the rule or by the things that have gone wrong, if we want to raise a generation of people to understand right and most of them to do really well in being what they should be, 
We have to explain what the purpose is, what the ideal is, what the goal is with all of this. Anyway, these Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Come on, is it lawful to divorce your wife or not? Because they were trying to get him into hot soup with one crowd or the other crowd. He did something smart, as you'd expect. He didn't even discuss the issue whether these rabbis were right or those rabbis were right. He didn't take up their arguments at all. He just went right back to what Moses had actually written. And he starts with the term, in the beginning. It's the first three words in the Bible. And it's, it's really an English kind of a phrase that simply means creation. At the very beginning, of the, the, the institution of all things. He said, uh, we'll put it up, Matthew 19, 3 to 9. Now you'll know why we've got this passage in the Bible. The society Jesus lived in, the problems they have were like our own. He's been put on the spot. What is the truth? What is really God's heart? Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That says a lot too about society's values today. Don't ever forget this. What's being built in society around you is a house of cards. It will come down under the weight of its own stupidity sooner or later. The human race for thousands of years have understood this. And it will remain. We made the male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That hold fast is the cleave to or be glued to. So verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. This is where we get the famous statement. This is, this is Jesus' famous statement. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we know that, yes, sometimes things go wrong and we are sympathetic and understanding and supportive and caring and we're not condemnatory, we're not judgmental, but we still hold the value of marriage. There's a verse comes to mind, you know, insofar as it lieth with you, be at peace with all men. This is what we seek to do, insofar as it lies with you, Seek not to be separated. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, Moses did. Moses wrote, wrote in the law. It's right there in Deuteronomy. That to divorce, it required that you write a certificate of divorce. It turns out Moses was dealing with a nasty problem too. And the problem was he brings all these ungrateful wretches out of Egypt and they were careless with their morals, ditched their wives in a blink, and, and you know, was no, divorce was no different than booting her out of the house and, and, and taking up some other woman. And so, you know, they, they were so in, 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 inculcated with this way of thinking and all these freedoms they'd been used to, that what do you do? Do you, do you outlaw it completely or do you seek to bring in some justice and some reality and, and seek to regulate it? You know, in other words, bring it some order. So Moses was actually not 
ramping up, you know, freedoms to, oh, no, you can do more than you could before. He was trying to bring it in with a limitation. He was basically saying, if there's going to be a divorce, it's, it needs to be thought about. You're going to have to sit down. There's going to, have to be a proper legal form for this. You're going to have to take the time to sit and write. In other words, time to think, time to consider. Nevertheless, Jesus made a comment. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce in away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. In other words, they had a serious cultural problem. Moses allowed you, but, but look at Jesus' words, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, it, from the beginning, all that was in God's heart, what he really, really intended was that the whole human race would be made up of marriages where a man and a woman would be joined for life love would be held the honor held in the marriage held in all fidelity the human race secure children raised in security everyone honoring one another this is god's heart god's plan from the beginning it was not so but because of the hardness of your heart in other words there are circumstances in which it turns out it is best unfortunately for people to go their own ways. Nevertheless, Jesus said, now remember he's talking into that society where they could, thought they could write a bit of paper and boot their wives. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife. So remember he's talking right, looking them right in the eye there to Pharisees. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, if you ditch your wife because it's convenient, well, just because you had differences of opinion and arguments and haven't resolved it and can't be bothered to because, oh, well, it's not working out, let's get a divorce. In other words, casual divorce. If you're doing it because you want another person, and I know two people in the last few years who, you know, put up, two blokes who put up this persona about the marriage had broken down and they've tried and tried and tried, but no, in the end it's all over. But long before they said that, they already had a relationship, a friendship developing with another person. That's adultery. And so that brings us to this great passage, and time's about up, which is un unfortunate, but here we go. I, I, this passage here, Ephesians 5, you, at least we should see this. This is um, the loveliest passage that explains more clearly than anything that there's something about marriage that the Lord intended. You think, why did the Lord create the human race this way? Why is marriage holy? Why is the sanctity of marriage so important? And it turns out, look, suppose human beings were an ant colony and you were God. How are you going to communicate? How are you going to get them thinking right, living right, you know, building society right? Well, ants might have it all figured out, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I'm talking about the communication difficulty. God, God is a spirit. He says, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your way, thoughts than your thoughts. How does he communicate to us some supreme values? One of the things he, he must communicate, if Christ is going to come with an eternal purpose, 
See, the purpose of Christ in salvation and in dealing with the sin of Adam was not just to give you a slightly better life. In fact, when the Lord first made Adam, his purpose was actually to create a, a blood-linked race, that in other words, we all belong to each other, we're brethren, that somehow becomes the uh, actual part of the Godhead. This is why the church, by the way, is called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's no ordinary salvation. You're not just saved so the world can be a better place. The whole purpose of salvation history from the beginning was God wanted a people to gather into himself who were one with him and he one with them. It's almost like the holy trinity of three would become a holy quad of four. Uh, hard to get your head around that. How, but that in eternity you'd be part of the very life of God himself. You're in Christ. You're joint heirs with Jesus. This is not the status of an angel. The Bible says you're made for a little while lower than the angels, but the whole, and angels looking after you supposedly, except a bunch of them got jealous of it. But the whole purpose of that was so that from there he could raise you to be part of his own inner community, holy communion with God. No wonder he says he wants to live with us and walk amongst us and he be our God and us his people. What he had in mind is, is an intimacy and a oneness of such a supreme level. You and I would never get it. But he tries to give us a picture and the picture is marriage. He puts it in the earth where you take two people and you make them one. And from that point on, they, they walk together, they live together, they join their bodies, everything they own, they own together. Anything goes wrong, something has gone wrong for them both together. Either one of them have a pain, they both have a pain. Either one has a victory, they both have a victory. Oneness. This is what marriage was ideally meant to be. No, I, I, think, I think God that Isla and I, despite along the way, you know, all the trials of life and the stresses and the times you have disagreements. The one thing that has not shifted is that deep inner belief that we just belong to each other. And no matter what happens day by day, it's, uh, we act and think like one person even though there's often two opinions. But some of you are one person and you've got two opinions. They used to say about Baptists, you put two Baptists together, you've got three opinions. <laughs> jokes. You used to be able to tell jokes like that when we were Baptist pastor. Not anymore. <laughs> anyway. No, the oneness, see? No, no, it's real. And, and this is the delight when, when you find it, and by the grace of God. Look, 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 look. Simply put, he put into the earth something we could so understand the intimacy of love imagine that two people so in love with one another live their life together become one raise children this this is holy and the reason it's holy is it's the clearest picture of all that god has put into the earth so that we could get some concept of the intimacy and the oneness that each of us is meant to walk with, with Christ. And that's why we have this passage, which we're now going to read, hopefully make a bit more sense.
Ephesians 5:22 on wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now some some women wouldn't like that statement. If you don't like it, all I can suggest is seek the Lord to find out what he meant. Cuz it's surely not bad or harmful. So stop fearing it. Find out, oh, what's the life in that that's so meant to be a blessing? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. See, that, that's because it is this picture in the earth of something. His body and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Remember, it's a holy submission we're talking about, not talking about slavery and control, but something holy going on here in terms of the heart attitude and the cooperation and the walking together and the oneness. And But then, ah, it's, it says a little bit about wives, but now it's going to say a heap to husbands. So it's the blokes who actually get the bigger command here. You blokes. Husbands, love your wives. Now you notice the instruction isn't the same. I'll tell you why in a minute. It doesn't say, wives love your husbands, husband loves your wives. It's not, it's not the same command. I'll tell you why in a tick. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now here's a tall order. Wives have, seems have only got to do kind of, you know, this much, but the fellas, you better step up. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul quotes Jesus' words, therefore a man shall leave, or actually Moses' words, God's words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's the cleave again. And the two shall become one flesh. Here's the capstone. This mystery is profound. Is it, see what we got there? Yes, yes, second line, middle of the row. This Mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What? Yes, the mysterious and wonderful husband-wife relationship is a profound mystery. But it refers to Christ and the church. You, married woman, married man, you are a picture in the earth of the glory of God in Christ redeeming the church loving the church. However, final statement, let each one of you love his wife as himself and see the wife that she respect her husband. Look, there's some other lovely things I would have liked to have shared. Time has gone. Maybe some other day, maybe in the new year. We'll take a second bite at the cherry, as um, my old head principal used to say. But Finishing on this note, why do men and women get a different command? Look at it again. Look at the last line. It's, it's repeated. It's actually, actually not only Paul here, Paul elsewhere, Peter elsewhere, same emphasis. What is it? Look at the last line. Let each one of you, he's talking to the men now, love his wife as himself and, there it is, let the wife see that she respects her husband. What's the deal? Look. 
Wives should love and respect. Husbands should love and respect. But the critical bit is, is that a man feels more cherished, more, he feels, he'll feel more of a man, he'll feel more that you care for him if you respect. In other words, something about the psyche of a man is more needful for respect than for love. But on the other hand, there's something about the, the makeup of the way God has made a woman that she needs the love even more than the respect. Both, both are needs. Don't, you know, we don't overlook both are needs. But uh, husbands, you think about how to cherish your wives. Wives, you think about how to support your husbands. And somehow this meets the largest emotional need of the whole deal. Look, we haven't addressed any issues on how to solve issues. Um, all, in fact, what is best sometimes is if we have marriage enrichment weekends and that kind of thing. The whole purpose of today was just to say marriage, hugely important in God's eyes, should be hugely important in our eyes, and let it be that on the whole, most marriages seek to, to fill out the, the purpose of this thing in the earth, honouring the Lord, honouring each other. You have problems, you have frustrations, you have disappointments, you have anger. Uh, let's try and deal with those because there would be a way for most people to bring that marriage to a rich place with depth of understanding rather than take the modern attitude of the world around us Oh, if it doesn't work out, we can get a divorce. Could I say, you might not know this, but you might. It's been discovered, not once or twice, but over and over, that people who are in an unhappy marriage are never as unhappy as when they divorce. In other words, you think you, some people think they're divorced because their marriage is a bit unhappy but they divorce and find that it's worse. It doesn't solve problems. Now admittedly, sometimes, sometimes, we're not talking about the exceptions to the rule today. We're talking about what's the ideal? What must we uphold the principle of <clears throat> for the sake of most people? So there you are. The sanctity of marriage, could you please remember, it's holy. And the New Testament says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. No, it's sacred. The sanctity of marriage. Keep the marriage bed undefiled for God, book of Hebrews chapter 13 says, will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Well, let us, let us pause for prayer then and... Um, Just thinking as we pray a little more broadly than, than marriage alone, the, the truth about marriage, of course, calls for, for faithfulness. When you're called to Christ, when you're, when you're called to salvation, the purpose of your discipleship 
is not specifically your own happiness. It's something far bigger than that that requires discipline and self-denial and self-control that leads to something far better than happiness. It leads to this deep sense of joy and of peace and of wholeness, of healing. You can pursue happiness in, in you know, leisure and pleasure, but it won't actually fulfill you. And that's why we don't enter marriage thinking, ah, this is all about my own happiness. It is not about you, but rather, if we pursue a course of self-discipline and get our eye on what it is all about, we might just have a better time of it. So in the bigger picture, not just marriage, but in the bigger picture of life, can each one of us stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours, and would you do with me whatever seems good to you? Let's ask the Lord to forgive us all our transgressions and forgive us all our iniquities and cleanse our hearts. Let's ask the Lord if you would grant us understanding and wisdom and guidance for all the days ahead. And if you would grant to us not just holy marriages, but that for all of us together to be a holy people. How about you stand with me as we commit these things to the Lord in prayer. You in your own heart and me in mine, I'll pray, but you pray with me. Bring your hearts to Jesus. And Father, I pray... I pray for the church. I pray for all the believers gathered, all our children gathered. I pray for all of those online. And ask that in, in this moment there'd be a grace, a, a, a grand transaction taking place in every heart because of your goodness to us, your word to us. I ask the Lord you'd enlighten the eyes and grant the spirit of revelation in every heart so that each one might have such an inner sense of your purpose for them, your purpose for their homes and marriages either now or in times to come, your purpose for them in being fathers or mothers or uncles or aunts and being grandparents and all the rest, being light and salt in the world. And Lord, I lift up to you today all the people of peace. I pray that wherever there is sorrow, you'd heal the heart. Wherever there's been sin, forgive. Wash us, wash us from our sins. Cleanse us. Even as you did that, that lady at the well in Samaria who'd had five husbands and, and was then living with someone not a husband, but you forgave her sins and she came to faith in Christ. New life, I thank you. Thank you for the one who... 2,000 years ago, seated upon the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I ask the Lord that today, no matter what mistakes in life have been made by anybody present or online, whether divorce, whether adultery, whether, whether angry words, whether abortion, Lord, whatever sin there may have been in the life of anybody, whatever, whatever guilt they may be carrying, I ask the Lord that today you'd wash them clean. 
that you would forgive and that you would heal the heart. And Lord, for those who, who have over the years had to divorce and have remarried, I ask that you'd come to them and grant them understanding of your word and as it applies to them and grant them, Lord, to find grace and to find peace and to find just what it is you, you desire to do and to say to them today to make them whole, to make them complete, to bless the rest of their lives, that the course of their years to come would be fruitful and joyful, that their present marriage would be following the picture, able to find the presence of Jesus in a greater way, a fuller way, more of finding that holy oneness. Thank you for the holy glue, that which binds us together in our marriages, but also that grace from Christ that puts us together as a people. Thank you, Lord, for that other holy glue that causes us to be in Christ forever and ever, being built together as we are living stones in an eternal temple. Thank you, Lord, these earthly things speak of eternal and wonderful things. And I pray of nothing else that the Spirit of the Lord today would grant to every heart, even the youngest among us, the ability to, with holy imagination, fully embrace the meaning and the purpose of the things you do in our lives. I ask the Lord the blessing of your peace today upon every home, every heart, every marriage. Lord, enrich these marriages. Enrich the love of one for another. Enrich family life. Enrich children. And Lord, in moving into the future, I pray our children grow up in the knowledge, the fear, the nurture of the Lord. May the word of God live in every one of them. And so, dear friends, grace and peace to you. May your home be filled with grace. The peace of the Lord Jesus rest upon your hearts and minds. May your lives bear fruit to the glory of God. I commit you to his care this day. In Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Amen. Because the lateness of the hour will we'll quit right there. It's fellowship time. We get to talk to each other. It's uh, tea and coffee time. So God bless you. Plenty to think about all the while keeping our hearts, you know, you know, free of condemnation and judgment. Yes, God, God bless you all. <laughs>